Welcome to another episode of Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. It is with great honor that we welcome to the show Vance LaSalle. Vance was the co-founder of Blade Logic, the greatest success story in the history of software sales. He has since taken CEO positions at companies like Sumo Logic and is now the chief exec and president at PropertyBase, a disruptive real estate technology company. In this episode, we discover Vance's ability to adapt to different roles in the chaos of a startup environment to become the revered executive leader he is today. This is his playbook. series the 33 CXOs we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man John McMahon a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Good afternoon, everyone. And it's a real honor and privilege to welcome Vance LaSalle. Thanks, guys. Oli, Simon, appreciate the opportunity. Welcome to the show, Vance. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's an exclusive opportunity. I, I heard you guys are doing this. I felt left out, so I had to wiggle my way in. The show wouldn't be complete without you, Vance. <laughs> absolutely, well, thanks, absolutely. Appreciate it. So for, the, for our visit, for our guests and for our... Do you know what? Oh. I'm going to start again. <laughs> <laughs> what was wrong with that? <laughs> Honestly. He just stubbed his toe. It's all right. It's, yeah. Okay. It's been a long day. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, Okay. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Hey, everyone. And it's an absolute honor and privilege to welcome Vance LaSalle. Vance, welcome to the show. Simon, thank you. Oli, real pleasure to be here. Welcome to the show, Vance. For our listeners yeah, and for our viewers today, Vance LaSalle, president and CEO of Property Base, former president and CEO of Sumo Logic. And more, most significantly, for the context of this series, co-founder of Blade Logic. What an absolute honor to have you on the show. Now, Vance, could you start off by just telling us a little bit about your current role um, at Property Base? Yeah, I appreciate it, Simon. I mean, Property Base is the leading uh, software provider to the real estate industry. So, if you think of you know, brokerages, agents, even the mortgage sector, all of those people, millions of them in the US and, you know, we're in 50 countries 
are looking for software to you know, drive their top line and drive their growth. And they use all of our data and, and SaaS software to help do everything from drive leads to close deals. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible journey that you've been on. And uh, we are going to talk a lot more about property base because you are obviously building something which is, you know, very special and, you know, really looking forward to going that going through that with you. Um, but needless to say, it has been a, a stellar, stellar career, multiple CEO positions, some significant positions uh, throughout your, your, your journey so far. But I suppose where I'd really like to start today is understand the background. You know, how, how do you view yourself in terms of your, your, your kind of your, your background and, your, and your, your kind of skills? Are you a technology guy? You're an accountant. What, what is your background? Yeah, I would say I'm, uh, you know, people use fancy terms like entrepreneur and things like that. I mean, I really think of myself as a you know, as a, as a sales guy with a technology background, um, you know, everything that I've done in my career has, you know, has been driven by technology and, and sales is something that I've been lucky enough to, you know, pick up in, you know, since the blade logic days and, and my exposure to people like John McMahon and others. Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously you, you graduated from university. Did, did you know what you wanted to do out of university or, or how, how did things kind of manifest? How did they play out? Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back just a little earlier because it all kind of that's what drove it. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in, in Maine, which is this tiny state in the top corner of the United States. Uh, and, you know, I came from a, a lower middle class upbringing. My dad had started a, a, a company that basically makes manufacturers hats, you know, for lack of a better term. So back in the old days, in the 80s, um, you know, that's how old I am. They had these this fad, which were these things called painters hats, which painters would buy. And, you know, they and, and my dad was in the paint industry. And he was a sales guy and he basically realized like, oh, I could sell these to everybody. And so he got a contract with the NFL, with Michael Jackson tour, with, with Major League Baseball. And to that point, he did not have a business. Uh, and the business started in our house when I was 10. So on weekends, you know, I'd be, I'd be down at like 6 a.m. and I would sew visors on the hats and I would silk screen and, you know, you name it to get the business off the ground. Well, when I was 14, he had uh, a, a MIT guy come in who worked at the local university to put in a software system to do everything from graphics to order entry. And back in those days, it was nerdy stuff like Unix and COBOL and C and all those nerdy technologies. And the thing never worked. And he had gotten a grant from the federal, the Small Business Administration in the United States. And he had to justify the loan to them like a year later. So when I started high school and I was 15, he said, hey, dude, you got to go figure this out. Like, you got to go make this work. And I didn't know anything. I had a Commodore 64. Um, <laughs> and so I picked up a book on COBOL, a book on C, and, and a book on Unix. And I programmed, fixed the software, recro-programmed a bunch of it, got the servers working. You know, this is back in the, geez, this is back in the 80s, 85, 86. And it was good enough to get the Small Business Administration to sign off on the second version of the loan. So from that point forward, when I was 15, and even before I even thought what I was going to do for college, I knew, like, this is cool. Like, software is neat. I don't know if it's a thing that I can do outside of this. So I ended up going to a business-oriented small business school called Babson. Um, 
And I took every possible computer science course that I could, but they didn't really have a computer science major there. So I asked my dad, like, hey, what skill should I get? He's like, well, everybody needs accountants. So I got an accounting and computer science degree. It was called information systems back then. And so when I applied to go to my first job, you know, and I worked, I paid my own way through college because my dad was still trying to make payroll. Uh, you know, I played a sport there, you know, I worked 40 hours a week. Um, I basically, when I got out, I said, geez, I really want to figure out how I can go do more of the software thing. But I didn't know it was called software at the time. I just knew there was like some technology. And in, in my area, Digital Equipment Corporation was a big thing right? They had, that was like pre-compact and all that. Um, and they had helicopters. So they would like fly to you at your school, pick you up and fly you to the campus to get interviewed in the helicopter. And everyone's wow. like, oh, we got to go work at digital equipment company. Um, well, I went to an interview there and, you know, something didn't feel right about it, but I bumped into somebody else from another university and we just got talking and they said, oh, I'm going to go. I'm, you know, I have another interview next week at, at Anderson Consulting. And I'm like, oh, what's that? And isn't that like auditing? I don't really want to do auditing. And they're like, no, that's Arthur Anderson, their sister company. Actually, you fly around the world and you work on computer systems. I'm like, just count. How'd you get the interview? Like, so I just started cold calling the uh, recruiting office at Anderson Consulting in Boston. <laughs> and they're like, well, no, you had to, you know, sign up like four months ago. And I said, well, how am I supposed to do that? I didn't know. And this is before the internet. I'm like, you know, you didn't come to my campus. Like, you have to meet me. And I kind of gave me gave him my elevator pitch. And so the woman agreed, this was like an admin, agreed to get me into the interview schedule in the next week. And so literally, I went, I interviewed at Anderson Consulting, um, and I got a job. And it was back in 1991. It was really hard to get jobs. But I was one of the only kids on the school bus who actually knew how to program on multiple languages. Um, you know, as scary as that is, because there's MIT people and all that stuff, and I'm not even close to their level. Um, but I talked my way through. They liked my, my grit and the fact that I could actually contribute on day one. And so I started my career at Anderson Consulting. And, and you know, sorry for the long-winded background, but it really kind of shaped what brought me here today. Um, and one, once I got there, you know, it was amazing because out of the gate, you know, we'll talk about blade logic and the PTC heritage and all that. But what was great about Anderson Consulting is, you know, they take basically tens of thousands of kids and they put them through training like crazy. Your first eight weeks, it was six weeks and it moved to eight weeks. You're basically in a boot camp. You learn, they assume everybody is like a history or an art major and doesn't know anything about computers. So you go through an in-person boot camp in your local office, and in my case, Boston, and then they fly to their what's called CAPS in Chicago. And you go through a rigorous training and they would, you know, basically kick somebody out every two days, you know, and they'd start the thing off and say, hey, you know, the thousand people in this room, look to your left, look to your right. You know, one of one of those people will not be here at the end of this. Um, so you kind of immediately realize like, OK, this is this is, you know, we're playing a game here, like games on. And we got to win. And so you basically grind like 16 hours a day doing programming, nerdy COBOL. You got to, back in those days, you had to submit your software and punch cards and they, they run it overnight. And if you had one error, your whole day's work was fa failed and you had to figure out what to do. Um, so it was a great indoctrination to me on like, hey, this is a meritocracy. You know, you're going to get trained and we're going to give you the tools, but everything else is up to you. And you got to go figure it out. So 
you know, my first project at, at that company, and you would get staffed on different projects. My first project was to go work on like a new retail brokerage trading platform at Fidelity, Fidelity Investments. Now, this is this is back when quotes were being provided over the phone, right? Pre-internet. This is 94, 93. And so I put in like a retail brokerage, you know, trading platform for end users and one of they have a bunch of different businesses that actually had to connect to a phone-based dialer and grab quotes. And so I drive, you know, give quotes and then you know you could actually do basic trades, not even basket orders. And I ran that project. You know, I'm 22. I had you know, two mid forties guys who were my programming team. And then I had a handful of client people I had to work with. Um, but right out of the gate, like any, you know, any immaturity or shyness or cluelessness, you figure out how to hide it or overcome it quickly in that environment. And, and your whole goal, you're just, you know, marching to how do I get to be a senior consultant? How do I get to be a manager? And, uh, you know, and, and quickly in, in four, four and a half years, I became a manager. Um, and then one of my, uh, one of my, uh, associate partners who had left, you know, probably a year before that went to another, you know, fixed fee consulting firm and he called me out of the blue and he said, Hey, how'd you like to come join this company? I'm going to start, you know, be my first employee. I've got two others that I'm, that I'm starting this with, and we're going to go do like really high end projects. You know, this internet thing's new. We're going to do e-commerce and internet and CRM, you know, back in the, She's this is 97. Um, yeah. and that's basically how things started. Wow, wow. So, so to take us through that journey because obviously, um, you know, in 1997, Egg Rock Partners, and uh, just, just, just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that, so the guy, great guy, Omaton, guy named Mike Morris, was the associate partner started this company with two other folks, BJ and Ellen. Uh, and I joined on day one with one other guy. And um, literally the first, I think within two weeks, this is based in Boston, it's called Egg Rock. Um, and there's a reason behind the Egg Rock, I'm not gonna get into it. Uh, but the, 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 myself and one other guy had joined as first employees. And within two weeks, Mike had said, hey, we got our first big client. You know, it's this woman and this other guy who left Marriott and Avis, and they're starting this new internet travel company down in Florida. So you're going to go move to Florida and start our Southeast region. I'm like, okay, I should probably, at the time I just got, I just got married. Um, and had I even gotten married? No, I didn't. Yeah. I just got married. Um, and I'm like, okay, let's go. So I went down and I, you know, staffed this project and, and hired a handful of people. And that was my first experience really kind of building something on my own. Um, because, you know, it's a, it's a different animal. Like Accenture's 50, 60,000 people, I think at the time, all of a sudden we're five people, right? It's a startup. We ha it's not venture backed, it's bootstrapped, right? So, you know, everything yeah. from, okay, can I go buy a laptop? You know, how much can I pay for my apartment? Like basic stuff you just figure out, you have to go do. Um, and then we did that. And, and very quickly, what happened was we started partnering on one of the competitors back in the you know, early pre-Salesforce days in the CRM space. Um, we built our own internet-based CRM on top of another company's platform. And so I built, that was my first experience kind of building a product that was you know, under the covers embedded another product. Um, and all of our customers, we started to sell that. And all of our customers said, well, where are we going to host this? 
you know, <laughs> where are we going to put it? And so I basically started a hosting practice and a hosting business, you know, with that company, you know, back way before cloud or anything like that. It's like, okay, we need to put our, our software some days, someplace. And back in those days you had like, you know, the, the, um, I can't remember some of the names of the company, the Exodus's, which is no longer around these big data centers. And you would, you know, spend tons on hardware and you'd manage all that stuff. So that was my first, you know, experience kind of experience with, you know, things that are more infrastructure centric and data center centric. Um, and, you know, that was, we, we actually, because we started that hosting business, we needed to get around to funding. And so this was like the internet was just starting uh, Battery Ventures came in and said, hey, we'll give you X amount of millions to go start this hosting thing. And then, you know, within, I think, four months, we got acquired by our competitor, Breakaway. And that company was already public, not much bigger than us. And I remember the first day, you know, Battery made out like a champ back in those days when when millions was, was good money. Um, and Battery, after that, we got acquired the first day, the stock doubled. They made an acquisition. Usually stock goes down, the stock doubled. Then the next week, the stock doubled again. So all these paper internet money was being made. And, you know, that was probably, you know, other than the decision, you know, put marrying my wife aside, the decision to, you know, leave Accenture and go to Rock was a huge decision for me, just career-wise, because, you know, it goes back to one of my first items in the playbook, which is, you know, you got to find, you know, the right market, but you got to find the right people, right? And you got to align yourself with those people. And, um, you know, when I, when I, Mike pulled me to go to Egg Rock and then we went to Breakaway, then the second real stroke of luck hit, which was, you know, Breakaway had already acquired another small hosting business, which myself and my small team at Egg Rock, you know, was going to go over and be part of, right? And the guy who ran that business was David Echeria, who is the, you know, basically the founder of Blade Logic, right? The, the co-founder of Blade Logic. And so I basically worked for Dave, worked for Dave. And, you know, for lack of a better term, I'll, I'll probably pump myself up a little more than I should. But, you know, I kind of basically, in some ways on things business oriented, I kind of became, you know, partially his right hand guy. If there were sales pitches or investor pitches that, you know, he couldn't go to, he'd have me go. Um, Cause I had a good mix of both, you know, go to market and, and, and business acumen, but I also understood the technology we were providing um, and, you know, did that, but that was quick because all of a sudden, you know, the internet explosion ended with an implosion as a lot of people know, right. Except for a handful of companies. And, and then by, uh, you know, that start, I went to egg rock in 97, we got acquired. I, I want to say in like 99, and then by the like 2000, late 2000, like, you know, we had a ton of, you know, uh, venture backed companies as our customers and they were all hemorrhaging cash when the stock market collapsed back then. And so, you know, we were, we were scrambling, trying to figure out what to do with breakaway. And at that time, you know, Dave came to myself and one of the other egg rock guys named VJ, who, you know, was one of the founders of egg rock. Um, and, you know, was thinking about leaving and either going to another company or starting a company. And that was kind of the genesis of Blade Logic, right? And, and the real, you know, concept behind Blade Logic was, geez, we have all these hosting customers. And we found that we realized that every time we would make a change to a server, you know, one out of two times, the servers would go down. 
And it was usually our folks causing the problem. The sysadmins were making a change and the software would go down and the servers would crash. And so, you know, Dave, you know, along with Vijay and I, and there's one other guy named Steve, you know, basically thought, geez, if we could create software that automated all this stuff, instead of left it up to chance with the sysadmins, like there's probably a big business there. Like if we could really do that, because there's literally thousands of servers and it's growing exponentially with Moore's law and everything else. Um, and so that was the genesis of Blade Logic. And, you know, luckily because Battery had made an investment in Eggrock and, and VJ was one of the founders of Eggrock and I had worked at Eggrock and Dave, you know, had done work in the past with Bessemer, um, you know, ba Battery and Bessemer put a bet, you know, behind Blade Logic and gave us our Series A round. And back in those days, Series A's were not that big. I think we got 6 million in our Series A round um, with you know, one of the smartest things that Dave did was, you know, he figured out and was able to, you know, negotiate the acquisition of another kind of company with a few people in it um, uh, to basically give us the bootstrap of what, you know, the company was going to be. And that, and that was basically the start of Blade Logic. Incredible story. Absolute incredible story. And so, at that very early stages of Blade Logic, what what hat are you wearing, Vance? Are you wearing the developing one? Are you wearing the 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 ideas? Are you orchestrating this? What 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 was that early stage role of yours? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't even know if I know the answer. Um, <laughs> so when I so you know it was interesting because Dave, you know, brilliant, super hardworking guy, you know, and and all of the stuff we're talking about, a lot of it would not have come to fruition without him. Um, he basically, he was based in New Jersey. VJ, myself, and the other guy were based in Boston. And most of, we had made the decision to start the majority of the nucleus of the engineering team and, and you know, and a handful of the first few reps. We were going to try to start it out of Boston to have some center of gravity. Um, and so when I joined the company, you know, I basically, my title, besides being co-founder, was, I think it was uh, VP of Product and Strategy, I think was my first title. Um, and, you know, VJ was the, the CTO, Dave was the CEO, the other guy was the BD guy, because he had, you know, he was a smooth talker and, and you know, could, could make deals happen. So, you know, what's interesting is I was clueless. You know, I had never really been formally trained in product management. Um, you know, but to Dave's credit, he was always a big, you know, champion of mine, a big supporter of mine, because he knew that, you know, I'd like to think that he knew that no matter what, I always had his back. And I was also a grinder, like no matter what, we were going to figure it out, no matter whatever had to be done. Um, and so I did what came naturally to me from my prior seven, eight years in the consulting world, which was go talk to customers and go spend time with customers. There's any, if you sniff anything that might potentially be a customer in the future, go after them. And that's basically what I did. I spent, you know, I'd say 70% of my time with customers and 30% of my time, you know, trying to translate what it is they wanted and what I thought that really meant into some kind of feedback to, you know, the engineering team and to VJ and to collaborate with VJ to to come up with a, you know, a customer's view of what's really needed. And what happened early on was because of that, I ended up 
you know, we had, we had hired our first sales guy who wasn't a PTC guy. He had come from, I think a company called NetIQ. And we're like, oh, this is a NetIQ guy. He sold tons of stuff. It's on the Microsoft platform. Well, we didn't really know back then that, you know, he's an, as good as sales guy he was, you, you know, the sales process at NetIQ was you'd walk in someplace and say, hey, do you guys have, you know, Windows? Oh, well, you need NetIQ. <laughs> that was, that was sales qualification. Um, and so early on with some of the early customers and prospects that we work with, I spent a ton, of, a ton of time with them. And what happened was we ended up getting in an RFP. This is, you know, early days in October. So we, we got our first round of funding, you know, September 6th, 2001. So five days, our first management meeting was on September 11th. So literally you talk about like markets and timing. If we had not raised the money, you know, if five days later, we would not have started the company. Um, and so sorry for being long and winded here. The, what, what happened was we started working with a few companies, but there was one company we got in an RFP with, which was one of the large, you know, still one of the large telcos today, but it had a large hosting business. And, you know, you name some of the, you know, top three or four cellular providers today. That's one of the companies. I, it's just Sprint, right? We were working with Sprint and they had this big hosting business. And so I basically, you know, flew down to Maryland and camped out there every week for the next two months. And I hired a product manager, a great, great guy named Derek. And he was down there and he camped out for the next couple of months. And we just spent every day, all day, you know, basically trying to show them that, yes, we had a real product that they could buy. Um, and it's a much longer story than that that I'm not going to get into. But long story short, you know, we're, we've been working with the company for three months. We had dropped our first version of the software and they laughed. I mean, they were like, are you kidding? The thing didn't work. I brought it down on my laptop. It just, it didn't function. Like, you know, you couldn't deploy files. You couldn't do any compliance. You couldn't provision the server. I mean, all the stuff we said it did, it did not do. <laughs> with a couple of examples that I could dance around. And so, you know, fast forward, we're getting to the end of the year and it's our first real quarter in business. And we'd only closed a handful of deals, you know, but, you know, I'd say all in a couple hundred K of software deals in our first full quarter as a company. And, you know, we're all kind of looking around and, and Dave said to me like, Hey, you know, we got to figure out how to get a deal out of this sprint. Like we need some more bookings. Um, and long story short, I went to the economic buyer who I didn't even know, you know, if he was the real economic buyer, I didn't even know what a champion was back then. <laughs> you know, I basically went to him. I said, Dave, like, you know, we're, we're going to have a real problem if we don't get a deal by the end of December. And this is like two weeks runway. We're talking three weeks maybe. And I said, like, I've committed this deal. You have to, you have to come through with an order. And we went back and forth. They had all of these asks, like, you know, he expedited trying to get a contract done. It had to be on their paper. And he had all these asks about giving warrants to them in our stock and all this crazy stuff that Dave had to keep going to the board on. And long story short, they, a fax, this is back when you had fax machines, a fax came through the fax machine in our tiny little fishbowl office in Boston. And <laughs> the number was like, I think it was over 700,000. I mean, it was like, it was huge. It was like three times what it had already done. And so it brought our first quarter somewhere close to a million dollars. I don't know if it was a full million exactly in our first full quarter of business. And Dave, to his credit and savviness, he went back immediately, 
you know, I say immediately, it took a couple of months and he got a series B round at a significantly significant increase in valuation. And he went outside um, and got that round and we were off to the races, right? You know, in spite of ourselves in some way, but you know, you look back, you kind of make your own luck, right? We worked our tails off. Engineers were working around the clock. Dave was working his tail off. I was never home. My wife didn't even know what cities I was in most of the time. Um, but that, you know, boom, we got a series B and we're like, okay, we can do this. Like, you know, we went from September 11th, we can't even go to a trade show or talk to anybody to, we just did a million dollars and we're going to go raise another round and we got it. And it was a big up round and we we're off to the races. Um, and so that's kind of what got it started, right? I would call that like mini phase one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, so then it was, we got to the point where it's like, okay, that was, you know, sheer effort-based selling and product development, right? So, you know, again, to Dave's credit, always looking for how do we make this organization better? You know, he found the first PTC sales guy, right? And, and, and again, to Dave's credit, he had gotten a great advisor on our board before he became a board member, a guy named Steve Walski, who was the, you know, the PTC guy. And Walski, you know, was great at helping us find people and vetting people and just a really sharp guy. Um, and, you know, Dave hired the first PTC sales guy. I remember interviewing this guy and he's like, hey, I need you to meet this guy. I met with him and I, you know, and I walked into the room and I'm like, is this the guy I'm interviewing? I mean, he was huge, like no neck, head, shoulders, just huge guy. And I'm like, this guy could not possibly be a good businessman. He's way too huge. He has not enough time on his hands. Uh, and then I started talking to the guy. I'm like, wow, he's actually very sharp and very, you know, intellectual and, 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 you know, knew way more than I did about selling. And it was asking me questions that I was just embarrassed by because I was so exposed at how bad of a sales guy I was, <laughs> even though I'm like, oh, I, you know, we sold this $700,000 deal and we're awesome. Um, and we hired this first guy and, and, you know, within the first, you know, it was, it was a grind, like he, you know, right out of the gate, he basically did things that were like the, the, the McMahon playbook. Cause this is a McMahon disciple, right? Yeah. He, things like blowing deals up sending blow up letters to like major executives of company and telling them how, you know, they're at risk of, of violating X, Y, and Z law. And, and you know, it, it was great. But one of the best things about it was it was the right time because we were in, a, you know, just a fist, a knife fight against Offsware, right? And so yeah. Mark Andreessen and the founder of the internet would fly around in his private jet and he would basically go in and tell all these CIOs why they had to be partnered with Mark Andreessen and then those people would call Gartner and say, okay, well, who's the best company in this space? And they're like, well, if you're going to look at Offsware, you have to look at Blade Logic. And then our, you know, our, the early foundations of our PTC sales team came in and would blow those deals up and say, what are you crazy? You're going to go with a company that the software doesn't even work? Or are you going to go with Blade Logic, who has 10 of the best customers in the industry and will work every time? Um, and that, that was basically kind of the first eye-opening view, like, okay, there's actually a science, you know, to sales. Like there's, there are things you actually learn that are really make a difference in how you go after it. Um, and it was, you know, and I, and I got a lot of that even, you know, before I got stepped up to a whole new level when John McMahon joined, um, which was fascinating. Well, well, tell us about that transition. Cause obviously uh, Steve Strachan um, kind of came in and then he was followed by Jane, by, uh, by John. So just, just, Talk to us about that kind of transition. 
Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, like, you know, again, credit to Dave, like he always, you know, he was, you know, one, if there's anybody who would like listen to his gut and rip the bandaid off quickly, it was David Acheria, right? Like if, if things were not working and even if they're working like five out of six cylinders, he always wanted to take the six cylinder to an eight cylinder. Um, and so, you know, when, when, we had Steve, Steve was much more of, um, I would call it an artist than a scientist, right? Like he had the playbook, was a phenomenal sales guy, was very charismatic. Uh, and so when it came to like hand-to-hand combat and, and helping his sales reps in deals and winning those deals, Steve was phenomenal. Um, but when it came to, okay, we got to take this four or five person sales team to now 20, and then we got to think about 40, like we got to have the playbook and we, we have to make sure that, you know, we understand all the pieces to, to the productivity model and how we train these people and, and how we recruit them and what are we looking for. And, you know, Steve had some of it, but he didn't have like, you know, great guy, but didn't have the full package on when it came to scale everything to the next level. Um, and so I remember Dave, you know, and, and I was, you know, I'd still like to consider myself a friend of Steve's. Like I brought Steve to Sumo, right? And, and quite an interesting uh, situation. And, you know, when Dave came, came to me and he said, hey, I need you to interview this guy uh, named John McMahon that, that Walski recommend. I met with him. He's really good. He's intense, but he's what we need. Um, you know, I was kind of skeptical because, you know, I'd heard rumors because we had some other PTC sales guys who are my friends who, you know, were kind of like, you know, there were rumors on the street that McMahon was talking to us. And, you know, they all kind of whispered me like, hey, McMahon is like, he's intense, right? And he's got this stare. Like, you know, all these <laughs> yeah. things. they probably told me all these other things, but that's what's sat in my head. Like, there's this intense, like death stare guy that I'm going to have lunch with. And that's all I was thinking about when I went to lunch. And so I remember sitting down with John and I may screw this up a little bit, but basically we started out the thing and I asked him out of the gate. I said, so, you know, you're going to come in here and, you know, screw up this whole company that we have. We've got this, you know, we got a good thing going. We did this much. Why do you think that you can do any better? And I didn't say it exactly like that, but that it was pretty, you know, blunt um, because quite frankly, I'm, I'm blunt and, and I was nervous. Like, I'm like, this is my whole life. I don't have any money. This is my whole life right here. Um, and he just had this little John McMahon smirk that he has, which I love. Right. And just kind of like, I can't, I didn't know it at the time, but in hindsight, I knew it was his acknowledgement that like, okay, I can work with this guy. Like he's not going to be, he's, he'll come at me. And I like people that come at me. Um, and then we had a great conversation, like just one hour at lunch, just the education that he gave me by me asking him questions about, you know, what made him successful was just, it was fascinating. And, and I, and I kind of, I wanted to believe in it because it just, you know, it sounded so great, right? Like just, he made it sound, he made things that seemed insurmountable sound so easy, right? And if you just apply these steps and apply this recipe, you know, on how you recruit and how you train and, you know, how you put the managers ahead of the reps and, and how you're thinking about staging your business and all of those things. You know, that was my first hour with the guy. And I've obviously, you know, it's ingrained in me and I've learned it over time through exposure with him. 
to him. Um, but, you know, so John came in, you know, and sure enough, the good thing was he had a handful of, you know, solid reps that he had worked with in his past. They were already there. So, um, but then he said, okay, now I've got to go put in the framework, right? And get the right managers that if we don't have them, and I got to go get the right recruiting and I've got to go get the right training and, and building upon what Steve had done, but really taking it to the next level. Um, and it was just really, it was super, you know, you could feel like things were just kicking into another gear because, you know, it was a tough transition as these things sometimes are. Uh, and certain people left, like I think our whole, you know, the majority of our DC office left that was handling public sector because uh, they were going to start their own thing. And there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of things that all of a sudden when you're not a huge company yet, you're kind of looking at like, you know, geez, is this going to be okay? Right. We're still <laughs> early here. And then John got there and, you know, we could talk about what he taught us and, and, and the playbook and all that stuff. But, you know, it was interesting. I just remember one, like in 2005, when the transition first started, I was thinking to myself, like, man, is this like, is this thing going to make it? You know, this like I got all my eggs in this basket. I've been here four years and I had some health and personal issues during that time. Um, and and then all, you know, and, and, I, and a bunch of people had left, you know, because of the transition and their own things. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, 2000, late 2006, 2007 rolls around. And I remember going to a management meeting and Dave, you know, starts talking about, you know, preparing for the IPO. And I'm like, you know, I was, it, I was almost, it almost seemed that abrupt, like that it was happening. Um, and, you know, boom, then we went public and then we were acquired. Right. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of stuff happened, you know, in between, but what always, you know, always happened no matter what is the, ability and confidence of John and Dave to believe that every quarter we were going to beat the previous quarter and that even if things didn't look like rosy, no matter what, it wasn't a problem. We were going to overcome it. And, and we did like, you know, I remember one, I remember one quarter when, you know, the numbers were coming in and they're like, they didn't look great. And all of a sudden John, said, I, I want to say he said we had like a $6 million deal, right? <laughs> it was like a huge number bigger than we had done before. And it was one guy in Seattle. And it wasn't like, you know, the, I don't think the guy had done any other deals before that at our company. Um, and all of a sudden, boom, it's like, okay, click it in. Now we're doubling the number of sales reps. And and so there was always like, because in, back in those days, you didn't have like, there weren't a lot of product led you know, kind of moves. We didn't really have an inside sales. Every penny that we had, it would go to a sales rep or to an engineer, right? Very, you know, we had one sales ops guy we got out of school that John hired, you know, from Bentley. You know, we had like two marketing people. I mean, everything went for a quota carrier um, because, you know, I think we raised 24 or 26 million total, you know, and the whole run up to the IPO that Dave raised. Um, and so it was, it was fascinating. You know, just to see that in action. It's so interesting. And, and so just going back in a little bit of time there, just yeah. before the IPO happened from, which was 2000, what, 2005 to 2007, right? Yeah. At that point with John behind the helm of the sales, was it as kind of, you were so bought in that you just literally stood to one side 
and let John do what needed to be done? Was it as simple as that? Or was there any pushback to say, come on, because as you said, this is, this is your business, right? And it's kind of like... Yeah, and I mean, so from my standpoint, I, I, I mean, certainly at my level, because I was not the CEO, like mm. it wasn't like I was pushing back. I mean, I stepped back and I looked at it and I'm like, this guy has so much more game than I do when yeah. it comes to selling, you know, and growing a sales force, you know, he's, it's, it's like, you know, it's like a dad and his child. Right. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to push back on my dad. Um, you know, I'm, I know there was always trade-off discussions when it came to, and that was the beauty. Dave and John were super collaborative, you know, f- f- since then, but, but certainly the beginning of it, you know, it was off to a very roaring start. Um, but, you know, the main pushback was, hey, the tension that, that, you know, people felt was, hey, you know, if we have a dollar, we really like to use 90 cents of it, you know, to, and, and the thought process was, you know, every dollar that we beat the plan by, Dave would take 50 cents and reinvest it in the people or things that we needed and 50 cents would go to the bottom line. Right. And so we were always kind of cash flow neutral, give or take, you know, thanks to Dave's, you know, very savvy management of the business. Um, But that 50 cents that we're going to invest in the business, there was always tension around, okay, we really want to take 45 of it and put it towards sales and sprinkle the other five towards other things. And so we were definitely a sales led organization. Um, And there was definitely tension. Like we did not have, you know, we did not have, as enough engineers. Now, in hindsight, it was very good success. So you could argue you had enough engineers, right? We didn't have enough marketing people. Well, in hindsight, you know, it got what we needed from a sales standpoint. Um, but I would say that was the that was the primary tension. People were bought in, but you know, you have limited money, and yeah. it wasn't like today where you go out and you raise a hundred million dollar round or you know some crazy number, right? It's you're taking the handfuls, the few million that you have that you beat the plan by, and you got to sprinkle it around to those reps. And and to John and Dave's credit, John's ability, because, you know, he talks about recruiting, but his ability to recruit somebody with, you know, 50 cents compared to our competition that would try to recruit them with a dollar was unbelievable. Now, part of that, you know, goes to the fact that everybody, you know, knows that he was the guy that had had all this success, you know, here and in his past and was the guy that people wanted to follow. Um, But, you know, it it was clear, like even our competition, the guy running sales at our competition, he was, you know, he was hired and fired twice by John at PTC, right? Like people knew the A-team was at Blade Logic when it came to sales. And so, a lot of people wanted to try to figure out how do I become part of that team? Um, you know, at least that that's my view of it anyway. That's great. So I know that one of your playbook elements is hiring athletes. And the reason I bring this up is because obviously this is something which was the blueprint at PTC. And obviously John McMahon really advocated that at Blade Logic. But I suppose my, my point to that is, were you culturally aligned in terms of what you wanted to do or did you have to realign to to the kind of the 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 direction that you were kind of being pulled no i i mean i would say it was 
I was never like I felt like I was I was shoehorned in something that I wasn't comfortable with. It was more, you know, taking what I I knew based on my own experiencing and taking the coaching that I saw from the value that people like John and Dave brought to the organization, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and doing with it. And, and, you know, you know, I'll tell you like a very interesting story as it relate, as it relates to that and, and who you hire, we had, you know, very early days when John got there, there were a couple of, there was a, a brother team that was in sales and pre-sales at our company, good guys. Um, and, you know, the brother, one of the brothers was a sales manager in a territory. And one of them was the pre-sales guy <laughs> and both smart guys, both had plenty of experience, but the, the pre-sales guy, you know, basically came in and took over the pre-sales organization. And up until that point I had been running it, but then I was asked to move on and go focus on marketing and, and our getting our, our services business off the ground. Um, and, but all of the pre-sales guys used to kept coming to me and I would see it firsthand in deals like, okay, we're taking like two or three steps backwards here. And I, you know, I, I could just sit back and, and just let it unfold or I could, you know, this, this is my baby, right? This is my company. Like my whole life's wrapped up here. I, I got to talk to McMahon. I just went into the office. And I said, Hey John, this like, I'm concerned about this. And I talked for like 30 seconds, this isn't working. And here's what I'm seeing. And you know, we might want to think about blah, blah, blah. And I tried to be, you know, professional about it and all that stuff. John didn't even say anything to me. He just picked up the phone and he said, Hey, yeah, you work for Vance now. Boom. That was it. <laughs> Literally like V-Man, anything else? I'm like, uh, I guess not. No, that's it. Right. So John was always like, Hey, if it, you know, he probably had something in his gut that he already knew, but he also trusted people, you know, when he trusted them. And he just was always, you know, he'll talk about just getting at the desk and clearing everything off the desk every morning. Like it's a classic John, you know, euphemism. Um, And that's what he would do at any time. Like if it's like, it's a problem and he could find a way to solve it immediately and it was the right thing to do, he would solve it that second. Um, And so back to your question, I always found like, it wasn't that I had to think a lot about, oh, am I being pushed in the wrong direction? you're in a knife fight like every day, right? When you're in that kind of environment. And so you just solve it, right? What? Okay, it's not working, go solve it. This huge bank that you just sold a huge multi-million dollar deal, not a single thing works, go solve it. Your IPO is about to launch. I mean, to give you another example, the day of our IPO, when we're going to, you know, go to Wall Street and, you know, you ring the bell and all that stuff, you know, John and I didn't go. John and I were at one of the top analysts in the country because they were about to come out with a report that said we were number two behind our competitor. And that was unacceptable. So John and I went and met with the CEO of that company and met with the chief analyst and explained to him all the reasons that they were making a mistake. Um, Because that was like, that was how Dave and John and the whole culture of the company for the most part was like solve problems when they need to be solved. That's priority one. Did you make the change? Did you, did you become number one at that point? It was, it, <laughs> let's just say it was massaged enough for people to, to read that we were number one if they wanted to read it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. a, lot so, of way to, a lot of ways to slice the numbers. <laughs> so um, I don't know at the time whether you had the opportunity to kind of 
reflect on what was going on around you. Obviously, we've heard the incredible stories of the sales uh, sales team. We're currently recording, well, we would have re- released the pre-sales series by the time this uh, this episode would have come out. Um, and that those teams were truly, truly remarkable. Did you have the time to sit there and reflect on what you had or were you just in a knife fight every day? Yeah, I mean, I think there, she certainly had time to reflect, you know, after the fact, you know, when we when we got acquired by BMC, I mean, because again, that was quick. I don't I think maybe we had two earnings calls as a public company, if that and then BMC acquired us. Um, so when you got to BMC, you know, you were kind of in a way you were a force to reflect because, you know, I know John and other people shared this with you, but you need know, this tiny little company of whatever we were, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people at the time, but only, I don't know, 70 people in sales or something, you know, ended up running half of BMC and, and all the go to market and sales and marketing and everything else. You know, at that time, you're kind of forced to reflect like, okay, how do we, okay, there's a reason we're here, right? Like we must have done something right. And pretty much the playbook that we ran at Blade Logic on a small scale, we basically put in and said, okay, let's apply this playbook, you know, from everything to pre-sales and enablement and marketing and all that stuff um, to BMCs, whatever we had, 24 products or something, right? So take our one or two Blade Logic products and take the whole concept and formula and bring it to BMC, uh, you know, certainly under John and Dave's leadership. Um, and, you know, certainly on sales and, and Dave was the president of the ESM group at BMC for a while. Um, and so looking back and reflecting, you know, and, and, and when I've gone to other companies since the, like people don't understand like the, how, how nuanced and, and detailed you, detail oriented you have to be to make all those other things work, right? Like, yeah, you can recruit good people, you know, if you're lucky and you're smart about it and you have the right story, but like, and you train them. Well, there's a lot that goes into that, right? Just the training itself, to give you a simple example, like, okay, what are you going to train them on? Well, what we really spent a lot of the time training people on differentiation, right? And like to this day, people can ask me, like, what's, what were the differentiators of Blade Logic? And I'll be like, oh, configuration object dictionary, closed loop compliance. Like, we knew exactly what it was and to get to those like four strategic core differentiators besides doing minimum security with Kaplan and his group and all that stuff like you know to get to that you know guys like me and Damon and other nerdy pre-sales guys are in the code you know in the software of our competition knowing every nuance and putting it through its paces to figure out where we could trip them up in a proof of concept and where we could win no matter what. And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff under the covers creating a, you know, a, a test plan, like what we call the killer test plan, that no matter what, if we do a POC and people execute this fair test plan, we will win that deal nine out of 10 times. We could be way behind, get to the POC and run the test plan. We will win. And now obviously you need, you know, the Paul McGrath's and the Marty Carides and the Carlos Delatoris and all those guys to pull it off with, with all the pre-sales guys that we had. But you had to have the plan to begin with, right? And you had to have all those things. And so, you know, reflecting back, it's hard not to have an appreciation for just the stuff that you absorbed, you know, through osmosis via the, 
you know, PTC, McMahon, Dave way, right? And that, that part of it was brought and part of it was learned. Hmm. Amazing. So just take us to the, the, the lead up to the BMC um, acquisition. So what, what was the initial response? You've obviously just IPO'd, you said two, three, two, three quarters, and then BMC are on the table. So, you know, tell us about that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, I knew, so on the um, on the analyst calls that were on, right, and obviously I don't know everything that went on behind closed doors as Dave did as the CEO, right? Um, but but certainly, you know, you knew when, when there was an analyst call and so on that there was always two companies on the call, multiple people from two companies, BMC and EMC. And they were constantly, you know, and it wasn't like one or two people, there were multiple people constantly on these calls. And so you knew there was some interest there um, at some level, uh, you know, whether it was just curiosity or real interest. And certainly, you know, some of these companies had leaned into us earlier on at much lower prices than the, the IPO was at. Um, and so in the lead up to it, what, what, what basically went on is we had, you know, our great IPO success, probably one of the best in a decade, uh, the, you know, very strong first quarter results. Our second quarter of reporting with very strong results. Um, but as a company, as a business, you know, we guided the classic kind of, you know, uh, you know, don't, don't over, don't over promise kind of guidance. Um, and, you know, the stock took a little bit of a hit on this, on the second earnings call, not massive, but at one point we were trading over a billion dollars and then all of a sudden we had the earnings call and, and, you know, we guided probably a little lower than some people want us to guide because we were conservative. Um, and that the stock took a hit right, right after that earnings call. And I think that was the signal for some of these folks like BMC to, to lean in and be like, okay, this may be our only chance. Um, and so I remember Dave coming to my office being like, Hey, you know, I got to tell you something that's confidential. And, you know, he let me know, like, this is what's going to happen. We're going to get acquired. Um, and, and we had a discussion about it. And I think, you know, for me at that point, I don't think I had other than selling a little stock and things like that, you know, at the IPO, very little, it's not like, I don't think the lockup had ended. I didn't even had really even sold any stock. So I was still in, you know, like, okay, you know, I got to pay the bills mode and startup mode. And, you know, that never really changed. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, we're going through the dance with BMC to get the acquisition done, right? Like, hey, you got to go through the diligence. And, you know, th th I think it was their, I believe it was their biggest acquisition at the time by far, right? I think it was probably three times more or four times more than they ever paid for another company, if I recall. Um, and so, you know, they're still kind of like, this is Bob Beecham. He's betting a lot on this acquisition based on the price tag. And so, you know, when we had like the executive level meetings, you know, part of it was, again, you're in sales mode again, right? You want everybody in that room to feel good about what they're about to do, as well as like, not just today, but two years from now, why this is going to be a massive business together. And all of a sudden, BMC is going to be one of the top software companies in the world. That was our, you know, mindset, right? And, and I remember having conversations with John and Dan. John and Dave about, okay, when, when we get asked these questions, you know, let's talk about this and let's talk about, you know, this growth opportunity and let's talk about, you know, all the things that we've not executed on that combined we could execute on. And so, you know, you're still, again, you're in a sales campaign, your head's down during that process to try to get, 
you know, certainly from a CEO standpoint, Dave's standpoint, he's got a whole other set of issues. He's got to deal just getting the deal done. But when you're supporting that as an executive, you know, you're, you're a sales rep, right? You're trying to figure out, you know, who are your champions? Who do you need to, you know, who do you really need to help, you know, get over the line? Who, who's really has, who's a coach behind the scenes. And, you know, we didn't talk about it like that, but that's, what's going through my head. Like you Vance are one of the sales reps in this process and you got to help get this deal closed. Um, and then, you know, the, we got acquired and, you know, I, and I think within like a week or two, um, there was a, there was a kickoff sales kickoff <laughs> for BMC. And I don't even know if the deal was even closed. And I'm sure people have told you the story. Um, just, you know, the contrast between the existing head of sales at BMC and John McMahon, and they had to speak on the same day. Right. And so one of them came in with like a wig on and played as a rock star. And, and then John McMahon came in and just, he just, everybody was like, man, I am scared for our competition. (laughs) If this guy is even working with us at all, I am so scared for everybody outside of this room. That's how you felt after John spoke for 45 or 50 minutes. Right. And then everybody at the, everybody later, um, you know, at the cocktail reception or whatever it was, the reception, I just remember all the delayed logic guys talking like, what, you know, when we were a tight group, uh, was like, well, man, what do you think is going to happen here? Like, are we just going to be our own little, you know, Island, what's going to happen? And then pretty quickly, all of a sudden, Dave's the president of the ESM division, which is all like server oriented stuff. You know, John's the, John's the head of sales worldwide for BMC for everything except the mainframe business. Um, and then, you know, John's building his team like, Hey, you know, Vance, you want to go focus on marketing and pre-sales and, and channels and, you know, and he put other sales leader in a sales leadership positions. But all of a sudden I went from having like a, I don't know, maybe it's a 10 person, 20 person team. And I remember to like hundreds of people, I think it was like 600 people or something, um, that was just on my team because I mean, our, our enablement team alone was like 45 people pre-sales with another were hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, and so I went from startup mode to like, oh, we're in a multi-billion dollar company and now we got to make this thing scale and start getting growing again to 20 or 30 plus percent or more. And, you know, during that time, looking back on it, it was, I never even, it never crossed my mind like, oh, this is daunting because <laughs> I was with my posse. I'm like, I get to work with John McMahon and Dave and Marty and Carlos and Scott and, you know, all these guys we get to, and then all of a sudden John brought in because he had the resources, he started bringing in more athletes, <laughs> right? He brought in Jim drill and, you know, he started hiring really good, you know, first line managers. And all of a sudden we start going to these sales meetings um, where there's like a whole blade logic contingency and very quickly things started to change. Like, you know, you figured out, you know, who's on the team and who's not going to wear the jersey. Um, and, and John, you know, was just masterful at making that transition happen in a very short period of time through a lot of political nonsense behind the scenes. Uh, it was very fascinating to see. But, you know, it's a learning experience. It was great. Thank you so much for sharing with that part of the, um, the story with us, fans. Because obviously, 
Now we've heard so many interesting stories, but you know, it's so interesting to hear the, the the behind the scenes and what's going on and the conversations and the nitty gritty detail. And as a as a team, and, and we spent thousands of hours researching and, <laughs> and and understanding this story, and it's it, it's just amazing to hear to hear what was going on behind the scenes. So thank you for sharing that, fans. Yeah, my pleasure. So. For you, obviously, you're now part of BMC. Um, you've started VP Worldwide Software Consulting, which then you spoke about, and then you took on a bigger role, which is then VP Worldwide, the ESM Marketing and Sales Operations, which is where you ran that big team of 650, and then VP of Global Services, right? Yes. So taking on lots of different roles and lots of dis- different disciplines, right? But adapting really easily to all of those. Well, I don't know if I'd say adapting really easily. Okay. Adapting. Let's just say adapting. <laughs> Taking it in your stride. No, I mean, and again, it's, it, you know, and, it, and this goes back to John and Dave. I don't have to mention their names too many times probably. Mm. But, um, you know, so the, the way the, the I got in that last role that I was in, you know, and, and I never really thought that I was going to stay long at BMC, you know, honestly. But because of it, it was it was interesting. It was fun. And all, a lot of the folks were there, as I mentioned. But I remember being like two years into it, and and uh, I think it was I think it was Dave that first mentioned it to me. Yeah, so it was so Dave was still the president of the ESM business, and he basically had said, "Hey, we need to, you know, we need to take our consulting organization, our global services business, which was a couple hundred million dollar business, which is you know think about doing all this." implementation and nerdy implementation work, but we are also doing some strategy consulting to help people do IT transformation, right? And he's like, we need we need a new leader there. You want to go run that. And I'm like, well, he's like, you worked at, you know, you were at Accenture, Anderson Consulting, like just, you need to go do this, right? Um, and I'm paraphrasing, but so Dave and I had a conversation and that was like on a, I think the end of a week of Friday and, and I was going back to him and he's like, you're gonna have to meet with Bob, you know, the CEO. And I, went back to him and we were trying to work out, okay, what's the comp going to be and what are the measurements and all that stuff? Because I knew I was signing up for another two years and you got to rem- remember, I was, this is now 2010. And, you know, I'd been heads down for approaching a decade of just working my tail off, traveling a ton. My kids went from age one to 10 in that time. And I'd spent very little time with them in the last decade. So I was basically trying to, you know, Carol and my wife, lovely woman was like, you really want to sign up for another one of these right now, like you're going to, you have to start all over and, you know, do all this work and it's all, it's global, right? Which my previous role was, but you got to go transform this whole thing and fix a bunch of things. And so at the same time, I remember, I think right when I started talking to Dave, he called me back and, and was, I, I thought to tell me like, Hey, okay, here's what the package is and here's what we're going to do. And he basically said, Oh, you know, I, this is a different reason I'm leaving. So, you know, at that time, he basically left the company and he said, Bob wants to meet with you or something to that effect. And I flew down to, flew down to Houston, met with Bob um, and Bob, you know, gave me the sales pitch, like why this is going to be really great and why you need to do this and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I went in and, and you know, it was, it was good and it was bad. Like it was good from the standpoint of like, it was all my show, right? Like I had to go take everything that I'd learned over the last 10 or 15 years and apply it at a much larger scale. And I wasn't under quote unquote, John McMahon's 
you know, wing. I wasn't reporting for him, to him before I was in that last role. And so I was kind of mixed on it because I'm like, okay, I'm not going to report to John anymore, but I am really his customer because all his sales guys are griping that this is a problem and slowing deals now. And so I said, all right, well, I still get to work with John and the rest of the sales guys and I'll go focus on this. And, and you know, it was great. It was a great experience, um, you know, just really taking what John had taught about recruiting and training and, and just ripping the Band-Aid off and going and doing it in a whole other large organization um, and, you know, making a lot of progress with it. So it was good. Great. So I suppose, how important was that for you then taking the next step? Obviously, um, you took a brief stint at True Motion as a CEO um, and then obviously moved on. So that was in you know, Jan 2016, but then obviously swiftly made your way to Sumo Logic as president and CEO in May 2012. So, so tell us about how you had to transition and elevate yourself and also how that really came about. Yeah, that's a good good question. <laughs> um, no, I mean, so, you know, basically I got to the, the end of my BMC run and I went to Bob Beach and I said, you know, Bob, I need, I think it's time for me to leave, right? I've been doing this hard for 10 years. I think it's time for me to move on. Let's bring in somebody else. Um, and, at, and at that point, uh, John, I think, had already left. John had left. Luca had taken over for him. Who was a guy who was our who who ran Europe for us at Blade Logic and you know great guy Luca that I've worked with for a long time worked with for a long time, um, and you know but at that point my the home front you know it was kind of like hey you know we'd like to have you do a little you know recruiting and enablement here at home how about you do that right so so I basically we came to an agreement that I would take a leave of absence from BMC right and then I could just figure out like am I coming back or what have you. Um, came home and I remember I would talk periodically with Dave and John uh, and Dave had gone to be a VC at one of the top VCs on the West coast. Um, and I remember him, you know, and at that time I, you know, being a CEO had never even dawned on me. I'm like, well, I, you know, I've never been a CEO. It's not something I, you know, I don't even know if I really even like in my head aspired to do that. It, but I remember Dave just saying, Hey, you know, there are a lot of companies in our portfolio and, you know, some of them need a CEO, right? And they're bootstrapped to the founders and we, you know, we have good investments in them, but they need CEOs. Why don't you come talk to, you know, some of the leaders here at, uh, at the company? And there were actually two opportunities that, you know, I looked at. One was Sumo Logic and there was another, and that was based in Silicon Valley and I lived in Boston. And there's another one in the East Coast, which was based in Boston. Um, and one was going after the data analytics and, and you know, the machine learning space and one was going out to the developer community with a whole new kind of app server platform and other things, both backed by the same VC, you know, both kind of similar, but, you know, as I went and interviewed for both of the roles, my gut told me like, you know, the best market and the best opportunity for your skill set is the sumo logic opportunity, right? Like it has a lot of, you know, same kind of, buying patterns, same kind of economic buyers. It's in the infrastructure space. Um, and, you know, but I, I was torn, you know, be honest, because all of a sudden I would have to go to my family and say, Hey, we're moving to California. And I got two kids just entering middle school. And, you know, my wife's like, you've just been doing this for 10 years. You take two months off and now you're going to go, we're going to move to California. Like, you know, it's like, Whoa, hold on a sec. And 
but you know, best, one of the best decisions I ever made. It was hard, you know, no question. Uh, but when I got there, you know, I, I when the kind of the setup when I got there backed by two, you know, of the best investors in the world, Greylock and Sutter Hill. Right. <laughs> and when I talk about, you know, finding the right market and the right people. So when I went out and interviewed and then there was a second, a subsequent meeting where I brought my wife out so she could kind of, you know, look around and see like what this was all about and meet some people. The guy who drove us around was Mike Spicer, right? Who was the Sutter Hill guy, you know, who started Snowflake. He was our Series B investor at Sumo. And just, you know, you talk about good people, just a great guy, right? Like introduced me to his wife, like right out of the gate, a great family. And, you know, he just drove us all around and showed things that we didn't really know. I mean, we're East Coast people. We didn't, you know, and really did a phenomenal job, job of ingratiating himself to me and to my wife and making us feel like, hey, this transition won't be a big deal. Like you, you'll have a support structure. And so, and just through my ex exposure, spending time, because he spent the majority of the time, you know, driving us around and doing the recruiting, um, it, you know, it was clear, like, this is a guy that I would love to work with. You know, you talk about Dave and John, like this is another guy of this caliber. And so that kind of cinched it for me. I remember Carol and I going back, you know, flying back and on the plane talking about it. And she's like, what do you think? And, and, and I didn't even get the words out of my mouth. And she's like, we should probably move. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, that, and that's basically what happened. And when I got there, you know, I think we had, I'm trying to think how many people were there. There was one, uh, one sales guy, one, one guy, Mark Musselman, who you guys have talked to, yeah. who had been calling me. I was still at BMC. And I remember him calling me. I was on a deal in Europe. And he basically said, hey, are you coming or what? <laughs> and I had not, you know, I'd not accepted the position yet. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm still working out with Carolyn and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. He's like, no, dude, you, you like, you got to decide because, you know, I've already committed and, you know, you got to, you, you need to come. <laughs> um, and so it was great when I got there, Mark was already there. I think he was one week before me. Um, and it was Mark myself. He had said, Hey, I've already talked to these two folks and, you know, you got to talk to them and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, it was like, okay, we had, I think two beta customers and that was about it. And it was like, okay, what let's run, you know, the, the bare minimum of what I remember and know about the blade logic playbook. Let's try to do it here, you know, and, and at the same time, try to evolve with some of the nuances that were different. Right. And so the first difference was I was the CEO and not one of the co-founders. So pretty much, you know, you get a newfound respect for Dave and the CEO that you worked with before, because you have no idea what happens behind the scenes to pull some of this stuff off, whether it be, you know, working with your board, raising money, hiring people, like just all of those pieces that you just kind of take for granted, um, you know, you're thrown in the fire and that's what you do. Right. And so right out of the gate, one of the smartest things that I did, I, what was supposed to happen because Dave was, you know, a partner at this VC that was one of the lead VCs, he was going to be on the board for that VC. And so I had another board seat. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get John McMahon if he'll do it. And so out of the gate, I said, John, I need you to, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And, and you know, the great mentor and, and coach that he's been for me over years, he agreed and he got on our board. Um, 
But then at the same time, all of a sudden I found out that, you know, Dave was, you know, not going to be at Greylock as long term as I had initially thought. Um, and he didn't end up joining the board, which kind of put me in a little bit of a pickle because I'm like, geez, I really wanted both of these guys. Um, because the, the CEO mentor that I really needed on the board, I didn't have him on the board, right? I had great investors. I had John, but you know, it's somebody who's been the CEO and done it successfully and taken a company public. Like that's a very unique skill set that I was really banking on having. Um, and it didn't materialize just because of the dynamics of, you know, the investors and, and, you know, J Dave's new role and all that stuff. Um, and so, you know, just trying to navigate, okay, how, let's, then let's just, best way to, best way to make this successful is be successful, right? And so that's what I did, you know, through the sheer effort and determination of Mark's artistry. Uh, and, you know, he and I tag team and hired some good sales folks out of the gate. And again, you're, you're trying to convince folks, you know, to come and believe in you because the product's still early. So you got to use what you have in your deck, right? You got to say, hey, look at these investors. There's something good here. You know, you know, you've worked with me before and look at this market, right? Let's go do it. Well, you're competing against companies that are maybe a few years ahead of you, right? You're competing against that same talent at App Dynamics, at Okta, you know, at some of the other, you know, plays. And Dave had not joined Mongo yet, but, you know, thank God, because I'd be competing against Mongo to try to find some of those folks. So you're starting to convince these people to like come over here on, you know, a belief way before, you know, they're going from running, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of dollar numbers to, hey, we don't even have 200K of bookings. So, you know, you, you, you got to do it. I now is my responsibility from doing it from scratch uh, and trying to do that, you know, with Mark. And at the same time, you got to, you had to figure out, okay, well, what's the new play now that we're 10 years later in the future and you have to adapt, right? You can't be stuck in your ways. You have to learn. And, and, and John and Dave will talk about this, you know, a lot, like there are a lot of people who just, you know, just rely on what they knew and don't adapt. And in the case of Sumo, you know, one of the things that changed it was cloud, right? And so, you know, you weren't selling software, you're selling subscription agreements and the terms and the contracts are different. Well, there's a lot of benefits that there's a lot of downsides to that in the early days of cloud. I'm basically going at the, the same week that I moved to California to go to Sumo, Splunk went public. Our number one, you know, enemy went public. So people are like, oh, that's on-premise software. That's old school. This was still a new shiny toy. They're like the big darling on the block. And so I'm going into a huge market where I'm trying to establish ourselves as the clear number two player with nothing, no bookings really to speak of against a company that's loved. And so, you know, you all of a sudden have to figure out how do we, what are, what is the core differentiation and how are we going to beat them and proof of concepts? And, you know, you do things, you use your advantage on cloud. And we had, you know, the other thing that we had going for us that, you know, I would, that, you know, was evolved from what we had at Blade Logic was, you know, R&D and engineering is a major thing in Silicon Valley. Like that's no secret. And, you know, Silicon Valley companies, you know, there are a lot of marketing and engineering, but they have great engineering and the good ones have great sales. Not all of the companies, you know, I, that I've been affiliated with, can I say, we always had great product and great sales. And so, you know, we used both of those things, the capital that we had, the product that we were building, 
coupled with trying to figure out how to get you know even a sliver of the John McMahon playbook into what we're doing um, and using John's guidance and you know as much as I could to go make that happen and and you, you learn a lot but boy it was great to fall back on just just the playbook that I had learned at Blade Logic. Amazing. So obviously you didn't stay to see the IPO because you, yeah. you, you did go off to leave in kind of Jan 2015. But you know, at the time of recording this, um, Sumo Logic just just IPO'd a few months ago, a couple of couple yeah. of months back. How do you reflect on that? You know, is that is is that you kind of proud of that? What what's your what's your thoughts of that? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm certainly proud of it. If you take, if you, um, you know, and again, this is where like you have to listen to your gut, you know, and, and I believe that. That's one of your playbook elements. You've mentioned yeah, absolutely. It a few it's times, like, right? It's, so it's, listen it's, to your gut. Listen to your gut, right? Like, and I, you know, you know, I obviously learned that as on my own growing up, but it, it was re-emphasized in just watching Dave and John in action in my career. Um, as you just make decisions, you know, thoughtfully, but don't, don't, you know, if something's eating you, then you just have to address it head on. Right. And, you know, at that time when, uh, you know, looking back on the sumo days, like I left sumo, you know, in my head, sometimes I think prematurely, but at that time I listened to my gut, which was, Hey, you know, I got a family here who's, who's sacrificed the last few years to move across the country. You know, one of them's entering high school and, you know, I was ready for their next chapter. Right. And it was not necessarily on the other side of the country. And so I had to, you know, weigh that. And my decision was, Hey, I got to do the right thing right now for my family. And that's the most important thing. And that's why I ended up leaving and moving back to the East coast. Um, looking back at, it, I'm still super proud. I mean, you know, whether I was there the whole run or getting the company, you know, off the ground to the first tens of millions of ARR, um, you know, that like that, I feel pretty confident that, you know, we wouldn't be talking about an IPO today if, you know, we hadn't done what we had done in the three years that I was there, um, whether it be raise the money that we raised or, or go close all the huge deals that we closed with some of these great companies and, and beat Splunk, you know, head on many, many times, you know, way before that we probably should have, to be honest. Um, you know, but it, it's just a great experience and, and, and quite frankly, a different experience. I built some great relationships with not only great salespeople, but some great engineers, right? A very balanced organization. So very pleased. So, so having left Sumo Logic, you, you yeah. went and did a bit of consulting, um, kind of some board work, and then made your way to Boston Logic in December 2017. Uh, and you joined as the president and CEO. So do, do you want to just tell us about that that journey and yeah, I mean, you know, I, taking I, that? I, I, yes, absolutely. So I mean that that's another scenario. So everything that I've done, you know, in my career, most often it's because of a, like a firsthand experience that I'm having, right? In in either you know my job or my personal experience. So you know, Blade Logic. You know, we were having problems at, at Breakaway. So Blade Logic got started because of that firsthand experience at Breakaway. You know, BMC happened because of Blade Logic. You know, Sumo Logic happened because of the people I was exposed to at, at Blade Logic um, in my experience in the infrastructure space. You know, in the case of what I'm doing at Property Base, literally 2017, my wife was, you know, got into the real estate. You know, our kids both were, we were empty nesters. 
they were both away at school and there was just the two of us. And she was basically said to me, Hey, you know, and she was much smarter than I am more, more, more university experience, the whole nine yards. She basically said, what am I going to do? I, you know, I think off the cuff, I said, why don't you think about real estate? Like you're really good with people. You're sharp. We bought and sold a lot of homes over our lifetime and always had a difficult experience. And so she got into real estate and sucked me in, helped her do everything from, you know, help her with her website, to, you know, gathering data and research and all that stuff. And I, at the same time, a couple of investors reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever thought about going into a vertical SaaS company as opposed to enterprise? Because we have, you know, this portfolio company that's in the real estate vertical that, you know, we think could be a big company, but, you know, there's a lot of industry shift happening. Um, and, you know, they went out a different, a differently, like it was a growth equity play. You know, we're going to go buy as many companies as we can buy and, and integrate them together and make just a massively successful company in that space. And that was, you know, it, it scratched the itch, you know, one, like to go do it from an equity based standpoint and go buy companies and integrate them. Like I had done some of that at, at, at BMC and I, and I enjoyed it. Um, and two, it was in a vertical that like I was experiencing firsthand that I'm interested in. Um, and so that's really how that got started. Right. And, and ever since we've been acquiring companies and integrating them and off and improving upon the product through organic development and sales. But again, the same, you know, things that I learned at Blade Logic and the playbook, I apply here. Everything from, you know, how do you recruit folks and sell them on what you have to sell them? Uh, you know, how do you enable and train them? You know, how do you move on from decisions quickly? Um, you know, how do you make sure you put your team ahead of yourself and when you're coaching and figure out what their personal wins are, all that stuff, you know, I apply here. Um, and both people that I've worked with in the past and, and, and new people that I have in the organization. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, in this case where you buy companies and you have a whole handful of people that may come into your org, um, you know, all of a sudden you got to figure out like every six or nine months, like, okay, how do I give them a sliver of what I've been lucky to learn, you know, through my Blade Logic experience um, or figure out how to move on and get the right people who, you know, may already have a piece of that. Just reflecting on your the very beginning of this podcast um, and you talking about um, the job and your, your father's first business in um, making hats. Yeah. And throughout this... He still, he still has that business, by the way. Still in that business. <laughs> Fantastic. But throughout this entire podcast... I have lost count with the diff number of different hats that you've worn <laughs> throughout all the different roles that you've done, um, which is quite ironic in a way. But what, what would you say has been, and what would you say is the favorite hat that you wear? Or is it you like wearing so many different hats? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So at, at, when I was at, at uh, Anderson Consulting, I got the nickname on a couple of projects of Rudy, right? They used to call me Rudy. Um, and I don't know if you've seen that movie, the movie called Rudy. It's a, a, like in the U S he was like a, a football player who wanted to go to Notre Dame. He could never get in. He was short, like five feet tall. He was not athletic. Um, but he found a way like to get into the university. He walked onto the team and he made the team and he got into one play you know, his entire career. And that one play, he sacked the quarterback of the other team. 
<laughs> and it's a whole story, you know, about and they and he's the only guy I think it'll say at the end of the movie. You have to watch the movie, it's a great movie. Um, where they carry the guy off, they carried him off the field because he was just so inspirational, right? And you know, I got that nickname because that was me. I, you know, I was never like the six foot four point shooter, you know, I was, you know, I always played a lot of sports and was good at those sports that I played, but you know, at the end of the day, it was, I was a grinder. Like I would, you put me in something and I will grind my way out of it and figure it out and work as hard, if not harder um, than anybody to make it successful. And not every time will it be successful. Um, and so, you know, for me, wearing, having all those different experiences from programmer to consultant to, you know, sales and sales enablement and, and, you know, you go down the gamut. Uh, to, you know, CEO now, like, I think it's the fact that I've been, you know, all these different experiences, it's, it's hard for most people to just like, pull the wool over my eyes, Mm. in anything that I'm talking about, uh, with them, you know, whether it's, you know, how we're going to solve churn or customer satisfaction issues, or, you know, how we're going to drive, you know, bookings and increase in productivity, um, you know, how we're going to put this marketing program together, like having all of those things and doing a lot of them firsthand. Um, you know, even though I may not have been the best at all of them, like it's been super valuable and I like it. Like it's, you know, it's something new and, and you can always feel like you're adding value and, and you always feel like, you know, the team that you're working with, like you can give something to them. Um, even if it's just a small sliver of what you've learned, uh, in a lot of different areas. Right. And so I, I think, like uh, it's a different path and certainly some people have taken, but it, it's worked for me. Incredible, incredible journey. Nuns. Uh, so, so just before we do ask the last question, I suppose if you were to reflect on everything you've achieved in your career, what is it you're most proud of? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, uh, the, the, there's not one major thing that I'm, you know, specifically proud of outside of personal things uh, in my life. You know, I think there are a lot of little things that I reflect back on as an aggregation that that I'm that that build up to a big thing, and and that's you know the personal experiences that I got and formed relationships, um, which I hope you know were good relationships with everybody from the you know the. John McMahon's and the Daves and the Pauls and the Marty Cardis and Carlos Delatories, like anything that that they did to help me and get me where, um, like I, that's what that's what's why I've been lucky to get where I am is because of those people. And there's a whole bunch, you know, Chris Healy and Mark Musselman, and there's so many people that I could name that I've come into contact with, you know, the Mike Spicers of the world, um, that you know I'm super proud of just those relationships, and I and I hope. You know, they feel like I, I, it was worth their time spending time with me. Mm. Lovely answer to the question. Amazing, amazing answer. And, and, and Vance, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you the final question, which is, um, does the hunter make the unicorn? And I think it's quite interesting in your in your situation because you've <laughs> made multiple unicorns. So, um, you know, in, in your opinion, does the hunter make the unicorn? Um, to be frank, if I, if I was a gambling man and I had to put money on it, uh, I would say like eight times out of 10, the hunter makes the unicorn. Um, 
you know, that's, and that, that answer changes over time, you know, back 10 years ago, when you look at enterprise software, you know, there weren't, they're great products, but a lot of the great companies had just great approaches to going to market, you know, and whether you look at, you know, small ones like Blade Logic, or you look at mid-sized ones like PTC, or you look at massive ones, you know, like Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft had a really good product, but, you know, their go-to-market was killer in its own way, right? And similar with Oracle. Uh, you know, Oracle had a, had a very good database. Sybase was pretty good too, right? But they had a go-to-market uh, and hunters that could figure it out. And so, you know, if I was, you know, I'd like to have both. Is the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the bottom line, it would be ideal to have both. And the companies, you know, the long-winded answer, the companies that are blowing up huge right now have figured out how to do both, mm. right? You know, and, and like Snowflake is a great example right? Have figured out how to do both and look what happens. Uh, you know, I would put MongoDB in that category, figured out how to do both and look what happens. Um, and so, uh, but certainly, you know, if I, I could only choose one, I would lean towards the hunter. Amazing. Amazing. Well, a, a very good place to, to, to end the, uh, the session, Vance. Um, just before I do thank you, I just suppose want to start, just want to finish with a bit of a summary on what we've heard. And I'm actually going to still Ollie's uh, analogy about the hats because Sorry, I think mate. it's really, really, really um, so fitting, pun not intended, um, in the sense that obviously you, you, you know, you are probably without question one of the most humble people we've ever had on the show. And the reason I say that is because you're multiple CEO, president, multiple IPOs, um, you know, there's, there's so much for you to be proud of and your whole career, you have been the chameleon. You've never been the one in the limelight per se. You've always surrounded yourself with great people, but I think what you perhaps haven't had the time to reflect, or I don't know whether you have the time to reflect is perhaps how much you've helped those people become better and, you know, maybe if you did have some time to think about, you know, the impact you've had and the reasons why people like Dave and, and, and John and, you know, so many of these people did believe in you is because you were able to bring so much variety. You were able to bring so much to the table, wearing those different hats, take on those, 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 those difficult tasks, but grinding through, as you've said, and doing it for the right reasons. And I think that that is a true testament to you. And I just want to say how grateful we are and really, really thank you for taking the time to speak with us today because it has been really inspirational and just, uh, just a, a great, great, you know, personal moment for me. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Vance. Yeah, Simon, Ollie, I, again, I, I, kudos to you guys for, uh, you know, coming up with this creative approach to telling this story and, and, you know, using it for not only your own good, but I think it's for the good of a lot of folks. And, and I appreciate the kind words, certainly, uh, you know, uh, again, I go back to my first, you know, my first playbook item, like, you know, it's always, there's a lot of things you can land in the right opportunities and be lucky, but the more you can, you know, connect with good people, um, you know, the, the more, 
you know, happiness and success you're most likely going to have. And, and certainly, you know, I feel like it's another example. I've, I've been able to connect with some good people here in my short time interacting with you. And uh, I, I wish you guys best of luck. And, and I'm sure we'll have, you know, some contact in the near future. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you very much for me. Right, boys. Thanks Sorry. again. We'll see you. Thanks, Vince.